You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The book that I've been working on is called Lyrica's Comedy, uh, and it focuses on mid-century and contemporary American poets, um, particularly two confessional poets, John Berryman and Robert Wool, uh, the more peripheral figure of A.R. Ammons, and the terrifically funny contemporary poet Terence Hayes. The book's directed at two primary fields. Its home is in literary criticism, and I focus particularly on the comic affordances of lyric form. Uh, but I also explore uh, comic theory, which is where I'll start today, spend about half of my time, and then turn back to lyric studies. So this book originated in the belief that most of the humor in our, in our lives is not uh, in things at which we literally laugh. Um, so you do not have to laugh aloud at anything in this talk. Um, instead, much of everyday comedy lies in slight, elusive remarks, in gestures, in intonations, um, maybe the look of another passenger in your train in the morning. We register these glints of comedy only slightly, if at all, um, but they are not trivial. They aerate most days. And they also aerate more poems than we yet recognize. Um, this is a broad generalization, but most literary criticism has tended to assume that, lyric needs, that poetry needs to escape from lyric to be funny. Uh, you can have humor as the territory of avant-garde projects on the one hand, or a witty, controlled, formalist verse on the other. So either in Stein and her descendants, or in the W.H. Auden of Under Which Liar and similar poems. It seems to me that modern lyric has its own quite unruly comedy. Uh, lyric is bound up with intense feeling, but it's also bound up with humor, just as intense feeling in our actual lives can have an element of comedy. So these poets look right at the emotions that uh, well up and overtake their systems, and in doing so, they make an unsentimental comedy within a genre of feeling, or so I'm trying to argue. As an opening instance, I thought I would show you about the first half of Dream Song 208. The whole Dream Song is up here, but I'm only to going to talk about the first nine or so lines. Someone, probably a colleague in the department, has just asked John Berryman how he's doing. And Berryman channels his answer into these massive parentheses, uh, rather than directly to his colleague. How are you? Fine. Fine. I have tears unshed. There is here, near the bottom of my chest, a loop of cold on the right. A thing hurts somewhere up left in my head. I have a gang of old sins unconfessed. I shovel out of sight a many ills else I might mention, too such as her leaving, and my hopeless book. No more of that, my friend. It's good of you to ask. And how are you? So it's a jumble of mental pain, uh, and it's so tangible and heavy as to be shoveled into further depths. But it takes on a simultaneously funny edge. There's something apt to begin with in how Berryman cries open to discursive modes here. The language of this nominal conversation 
how are you, fine, how are you, is a perfect, perfect antithesis to a lyric poem, which will tell you how somebody is in strange, vivid, impressionistic detail. It's almost synesthetic detail in Berryman's case, this loop of cold on the right and the unspeakable or uh, indescribable thing that simply throbs vaguely up in his head. The moment that we try to pin down the wit here, we begin to see that lyrics comedy is difficult to pin down. Uh, firstly, the song calls attention to our inadequate vocabulary for comic encounters. Uh, most of the adjectives we have for describing something funny um, between hilarious and somber are slightly watered-down adjectives like droll or amusing or entertaining. And those modifiers can change volume, but they don't really suggest differences in pitch or in timbre. So they are of little use with Berryman's poem, uh, which is, I call it rueful, uh, a bit surly, down and out, but also wry, uh, and is with all of Berryman's dream songs quite unpredictable, unexpected. Our lack of good words for describing the humor of poems led me to one of the main purposes of this book, which is to identify a comic theory that can fit a lyric frame. <coughs> As I was looking for theories to explain what I was seeing in these poems, it seemed to me our notions of what elicits comedy uh, could be shifted somewhat. So my hope is that my hope is to show that lyrics comedy can open up the way we think about humor more generally. And so I'm going to review our two long-standing comic theories uh, and then lay out the notion that this book explores. Our two current explanations of laughter, to construe them as broadly as possible, they've both centered on the perception of something off, um, either a, a defect, something devalued or wrong or degraded on the one hand, or on something discontinuous, or improbable, or incongruous, a lack of harmony. So the first of these uh, two concepts is a theory of superiority, where laughter derides and corrects misbehavior of all kinds. In Aristotle's formulation, comedy imitates the conduct of people who are unseemly, uh, such as these squabbling characters on a Greek vase. For contemporary instances, you might think of any number of viral videos with titles like Dogs Who Can't Climb Stairs. There's plenty of material in today's world for the theory of superiority. Uh, in this view, we are biologically and socially programmed to shame people out of being anything less than their best selves, um, out of being less than alert. So to go back to Berryman's poem, uh, we might enlist the superiority theory to explain why we smile at his rhetorical gesture of very conspicuously mentioning something by saying he's not going to mention it. I shovel out of sight a many ills else I might mention too, such as her leaving and my hopeless book. Uh, or we might note the self-absorption that that's apparent. Right at the midpoint of the poem where he finally emerges from his parenthesis to ask his friend, how are you? Uh, he immediately dives right back into his own churning, unhappy thoughts. This theory of humor can explain comedies not only directed at individual weaknesses, but at social customs. So the empty construct of how are you itself, which I'm not sure about in Ireland, but at least in the US, it's not so much a question anymore. It's really it's a passing greeting. 
The slide that has become perhaps even more important for current thinking about comedy is that of incongruity. So Kant says that something absurd, something that doesn't make sense, needs to be present for us to laugh. Here, surprising oddity is the source of the comic. So if you were a fisherman and all of a sudden you look beside you, a heron has decided to perch. This theory seems well suited to the humor of Monty Python's flying circus, but you might also use it to explain puns that yoke together disparate meanings in a single word. We might see incongruity in how Berryman, oh, I couldn't decide between herons, so here's a second one apparently. Uh, the theory of incongruity might um, explain, it might be used to explain uh, how Berryman, the humor in Berryman's pitching this tidy rhymed form, unshed, chest, right, head, confess, side, it's ABC, ABC, just like the resolution of a Petrarchan sonnet against the uh, muddle of disparate thoughts that lies inside that verse form. Uh, or you might perceive incongruity simply in the act of his saying he's fine when he's absolutely not fine. But whatever is funny in Psalm 208, it does not seem completely explained by a feeling of superi superiority or incongruity. Our silent laughter also entails something approximating admiration, or even perhaps delight. You might admire how Berryman has put his finger on the difficulty of pointing to exactly what's wrong, how he gets at the way we feel mental anguish as a loop of cold. It's a literal anatomy of melancholy. As you read the song a second time, or a third, you might delight in noticing how Berryman's iambic meter invites the first how are you to lay stress on are. How are you? It's the, the emphasis of an inauthentic warmth. How are you? Um, but for the second instance, uh, in line 10, it's good of you to ask, and how are you? Uh, when Berryman has to respond to his friend's question, he, the meter asks him to shift emphasis, to lay stress on his interlocutor. Um, so, how are you? Fine, fine. How are you? It's the meter here helps play up the, the truly fake perkiness of this little poem. So Berryman expresses a complicated state of mind and also a complicated social interaction with precision that keeps growing. I think this dream song suggests that our main theories of comedy don't entirely capture the sense of admiration that lyric elicits. Most obviously, we don't always laugh at the purported sources of laughter, uh, whether failure or oddity. Those qualities can often cause feelings of pain or unease or bewilderment. And it's not always clear why even something innocuously bad or strange should lead to the feeling of pleasure that we associate with um, a comic experience. So one of the things that my book does, or is it's trying to do, is to understand the link between delight and admiration uh, and laughter. These are some of the critics I found helpful in doing so. What's been especially useful are two uh, recent accounts of wonder as an emotion. Uh, as you can see here, Philip Fisher defines wonder as an aesthetic response of delight, a feeling of seeing the impossible happen. And that seemed to me perfect for a lot of lyrics comedy, where the impossible happens frequently, in part through the luck or the force of language. Wonder isn't mentioned in Alenka Zupanchis' book, uh, 
which is a more psychoanalytic philosophy of comedy. But it's helped me clarify uh, how these two emotions that are never talked about together, wonder and amusement, uh, might actually relate to each other. So the main principle of her book is to get beyond our very familiar comic binaries. We usually say that the low is interrupting the high, or the particular is interrupting the universal, or the, the bodily is interrupting the spiritual. Uh, Zupontius wants to say that these opposites are actually um, embodied in each other. The comedy has two mutually exclusive qualities at work uh, that really fold into each other. Uh, and her uh, image for this is a Mobius strip. I think that that idea of opposites that you can't tease out from each other uh, can help explain why the sensation of the comic might involve something akin to wonder. So, tilting our comic theory slightly, my book argues that an aberration or flaw, something off, uh, certainly is necessary to comedy, as many philosophers have maintained. But it, it needs to spark against an opposite ingredient. And that opposite ingredient is what's been, I think, overlooked. So the comic event seems as right or as perfect as it is off-kilter. Um, I should say I, I don't mean to defame comedy at all by emphasizing the, the rightness or the, something perfect in it. But I think that even in violent farce or in, uh, goodness, any of the bitter ironies of actual life, there still is often this inexplicably good um, quality as well, um, something inexplicably right. So we can see this comic wonder at work in the first 10 lines uh, of, a, of a much longer poem by Terence Hayes, his New York poem, uh, which has intrigued me because the first time I read it, I very nearly did laugh out loud with delight, and I have not quite been able to articulate why that is. Uh, it's a great poem. Thing can send it around in full for those interested. But it, it begins by sweeping across the city. Here's the city. And then descending on this house party where the Hayes character is standing. So, In New York, from a rooftop in Chinatown, one can see the sci-fi bridges and aisles of buildings where there are more miles of shortcuts and alternative takes than there are Miles Davis alternative takes. There is a white girl who looks hijacked with feeling in her glittering jacket and her boots that look made of dinosaur skin. And R is saying to her, I love you, again and again. So it's an exhilarating opening, I think both visually uh, in the innumerable routes of the light-studded city and also syntactically in how this opening sentence twists. Uh, it's both agile, the rhythms are almost like dance at moments in New York from a rooftop in Chinatown, uh, and there's, there's something a bit step-by-step -step and bumpy about it. It's, um, it hovers between the free-ranging and the uh, slightly flat-footed, perhaps one could say. Um, and it's got clauses that are architectural, and then it's got bits, especially in the second half, that are simply pulled together by ants, and her boots, and are saying to her again and again. Most specifically, Hayes has a distinctly breezy... Um, flexible style. He can move down the page quite quickly and have it seem effortless. But this first sentence is brought up short by the slightly thumping way that its comparison uh, repeats. 
New York has more miles of shortcuts and alternative takes than there are Miles Davis alternative takes. Usually a comparison brings in something different. Uh, you look at x through y. And Hayes is doing that since he's comparing uh, a cityscape to music, but it sounds, as you read it, as if he's comparing x to x. Uh, so this beginning doubles back on the very idea of alternative takes or multiple possibilities. And there's something wonderful in how it makes a surprise out of sameness. It's, it's, a, it's a distinct kind of uh, surprise and effervescence here. And it's emblematic of lyrics comedy in that it seems to consist of more than the sum of its parts. Uh, the elements have somehow conspired together also into these hidden rhymes uh, and that the awkward or odd or inept turns out to be quite um, perfect in its way. Um, I've been drawing my examples from lyric, but there are good emblems for this comedy elsewhere as well, uh, particularly, I think, from Buster Keaton. Are, are you familiar with Keaton's films or shorts? Mm -hmm. If not, many of them from the 1920s are free on YouTube and they're great. Uh, but Keaton's films are full of moments where space and time uh, somehow click together when they shouldn't, and of co coincidences that proliferate when they shouldn't. So there's a scene in, uh, this is from Steamboat Bill Jr. from about 1924, uh, where Keaton is wandering around town in a cyclone. So there are ferocious winds. And Keaton has, in events prior to this moment, been concussed. So he's standing in front of this house, sort of puzzledly rubbing his head, when the front of it very slowly starts to detach, and then more and more rapidly swings right off and comes, as you'll see, crashing down around him. Uh, and he, his figure gets framed by that upper window. Um, there's trigonometry involved here. I, I make my engineering students figure out how you would have needed to, what math you'd have to do to make sure you don't get brained by the actual roof falling around you. Um, I don't think we laugh here just at Keaton's obliviousness or at his bad luck, uh, nor at the simple strangeness of having a house collapse around you, um, but rather at how this, this upright little human and this colossal flattened house work together um, in space. There's something here that might be described as a dazzlingly precise convergence uh, stemming from collapse. If Keaton had stepped a foot in any direction, uh, or if the window had been a few inches shorter, he would have been killed. Instead, he's just slightly more puzzled than he was 15 seconds before. So even with comic disaster, there's often a sense that it couldn't have happened otherwise, uh, that everyday life has somehow gathered itself up and swerved from regularity into truly marvelous coincidence. I don't know whether to call this a miraculous disaster or a disastrous miracle, but those two elements are both at work there very vividly. So the widest argument of this book is that lyric can help us account uh, for more of the workings of comedy, uh, not simply in lyric poems, but perhaps in films like Keaton's um, and many of our day-to-day -day encounters with comedy. The reverse question of how comedy can change the way we look at lyric has answers that go in a number of directions. So the second half of this talk will be a, a bit more diffuse. Um, as you might expect, I'm writing 
against the grain of how someone like Lowell is often read. Uh, Lyric, especially in the second half of the 20th century, has come in for criticism as being complacently subjective, or as a genre of tumult and solipsism. So bringing out the humor in these poems troubles stereotypes like that. I went into this project uh, quite a few years ago now, intent on arguing that modern poets are simply not as gloomy or solipsistic as is often said. Uh, and of course they're not. Uh, but over time I've realized that the effects of lyric stereotypes uh, actually themselves, I think, play a role in lyrics comedy. So to sum up lyrics' presence in uh, culture more broadly, it's often talked about in terms of aesthetic and emotional heights. Uh, the word poetry has been used for centuries to refer to anything that's intensely beautiful or powerful. Uh, it's imagined as formally flawless, as verbally perfect, uh, as removed, far removed from anything prosaic, uh, and it's able to speak to many people personally and keenly. So there are large claims. Other genres seem to sense the poem's loftiness a bit like sharks smelling blood. So Shakespeare uh, has a young gentleman in As You Like It who goes about writing love poems and tacking them up on trees. And the other characters in this play uh, read these verses with much dismay and pain. And there's a lot of comic mileage gotten out of the terribleness of that poetry set within the play. Uh, Dickens loves making fun of poets and poetry. Every novel, there's one of these, I swear. Uh, so this is from the Pickwick Papers. Uh, and you're being introduced to a poetess who seems to float on Parnassian Heights. Uh, she dotes on poetry, sir. She adores it. Her whole soul and mind are wound up and entwined with it. And then you get the plummet. You may have met with her ode, on an ex ode to an expiring frog, sir. Uh, similarly, in Flann O'Brien's At Swim Two Birds, uh, the character of Shanahan is sitting around talking with two of his friends about poetry, which he refers to as that tack. Uh, <laughs> you can get too much of that stuff. Feed yourself up with that tack once, and you won't want more for a long time. So it's, it's rich poetry, or cloying. The modernist, modernist poetry as well uh, makes fun of itself. Uh, Langston Hughes writes, poetry treats of lofty things, soaring thoughts, and birds with wings. And he's working a lot of irony into those four lines. You've got the exclamation point completely gratuitously on the word poetry, because of course poetry is the genre of exclamation and apostrophe. Uh, the redundancy of birds with wings. Um, the age-old image of the uh, bird for the soul and also for the poet, able to soar up to those heights. So Hughes ventriloquizes a view of poetry that seeped into our consciousness. Poetry is uh, emotionally powerful and overpoweringly beautiful and completely removed from the actual world. And then you have Tom Gunn um, blasphemously using Wordsworth's definition of poetry, spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling, by attaching his own crash rhyme to it. Uh, so, of course, what these novelists and poets are targeting is a stereotype, as we all know. But it's also a set of notions it's hard to shake off thoroughly. And several critics uh, have explored how 
that, poets, that poems have an oppressive ideal floating around them. So Alan Grossman uh, maintains that a poem is like a translation or an example, and that it always ends up being something less than its imagined ideal. It's an idea that Ben Werner, in uh, the charmingly title of The Hatred of Poetry, has also picked up. Others have described how poems themselves seem mindful of their genre's reputation. So James Longenbach, in The Resistance to Poetry, finds that lyrics mistrust and resist themselves. Uh, lyrics' reputations have, been, have become increasingly important in uh, 20th century poetry, and most importantly for my project, uh, Gillian White's book, Lyric Shame, shows us how poets like Elizabeth Bishop and Anne Sexton acknowledge lyrics shamefully, uh, either naive or self-absorbed or conservative reputation in their own poems. So all of these critics point to ways that modern lyric knows it's attempting something futile or presumptuous. When you choose to write a poem, you've chosen to take up writing a genre that presumes to extract more from language than language normally offers. You know you're writing a poem with a capital P. The poets of my book, um, even when they're in desperate earnest, know that writing a poem implies impractical aspirations. And the pressures and expectations placed on the lyric poem mean that lapses, tiny ones, are inevitable. So awkwardness, inarticulateness, flatness, inconsistency, all of these can somehow rise up out of a poem. But when the actual lyric fails to live up to its ideals, the flaws and pieces of inept language can seem exactly what that poem needs to come to life. So the first half of this talk, I dwelt on the idea that comedy involves a failure or an aberration that somehow also seems marvelous or fitting or otherwise right. And lyric shows us that fusion again and again. So whether it's the accurate words you have turn into a cliche, uh, or when a simile seems too extravagant for what it describes, those failures can end up seeming bizarrely good. And they become comic because we see something that's flawed and also dazzles. So here's one quiet example of a comic failure, in, or a comic glitch maybe in lyric. This is from Home After Three Months Away, where Robert Lowell has spent an entire spring confined to a mental hospital. He was severely manic. And he's now writing about being back at home. He is at home. And the poem is framed by how much time he's lost uh, and the complete uncertainty of what's going to happen next. He doesn't even know how long he'll be saying. He certainly doesn't know how long he'll be at home. So the middle of the poem, though, focuses on a few moments of a single morning spent with this toddler who is splashing around. <clears throat> Dimpled with exaltation, my daughter holds her levy in the tub. Our noses rub, each of us pats a stringy lock of hair. They tell me nothing's gone. Though I am 41, not 40 now, the time I put away was child's play. After 13 weeks, my child still dabs her cheeks to start me shaving. When we dress her in her sky blue corduroy, she changes to a boy and floats my shaving brush and washcloth in the flush. Dearest, I cannot loiter here and lather like a polar bear. 
So Will ends this passage with a, a miniature inset lyric, this two-line song. And his most literal point is that he needs to get shaving cream off his face, and his daughter has commandeered his washcloth. Um, but given the poem's broader concerns, it also seems to try to explain his absence and his possible future absences. It tries to, do, to address the child directly, um, but the attempt collapses on itself. Dearest, I cannot loiter here and lather like a polar bear. So he ends in self-deprecation, with his face covered in shaving cream, and unable to explain why he has been away uh, and why he might not remain. It also ends in a cartoon. It's a, it's a peculiar simile. Uh, he means he cannot loiter here in lather looking like a polar bear. But the sentence itself, as it's actually worded, also contains this uh, fleeting image of a bear itself covered in shaving cream, I think. Uh, Lowell was an extremely visual poet, so I, I don't believe he could have not seen what was happening in this line. And it seems a little uh, cobbled together is the wrong term, but there's something, there's something certainly cartoonish in it. Um, and it perfectly conveys Lowell's inability to convey. So as with the Barry Menjima song that we began by looking at, lyrics comedy goes beyond simple failure and pushes into something funny because it's both flawed and brilliant at once. Um, lyrics comedy often circles around poetic defects, um, things that are insufficiently beautiful or truthful. Uh, Lowell's tiny lyric shows an ideal of communication that seems to fizzle out. But lyrics comedy also documents the ways one might fall short as a person. So failings of character are constant for the poets I'm writing about. Mental, emotional, social, ethical, uh, domestic shortcomings are really inseparable from their work. Uh, Berryman, we've seen tracks his rising and plunging moods, uh, his bouts of petulance. A.R. Ammons, on the other hand, is explicitly concerned with not having the intellect needed to write good poetry. Uh, Ammons grew up in the very rural U.S. in poverty that was sharpened by the Great Depression. I believe his family had a copy of the Bible and the first few pages of Robinson Crusoe, and that was it for books. So he came to liter literature from what he felt was nowhere, and his sense of irrelevance or ignorance of having to catch up uh, was not easy to dispel. And his early journals and letters worry over and over about his lack of ability. He refers to uh, those who have not the, the art of expressing themselves. He's one of those. So he develops a comedy uh, that's grounded in the least transcendent language available. And you can see here where he declares, I'm soaring today like a dead mole. I have as much get up and go as a rock bottom. Uh, again, I think the comedy emerges here, though, from the fact that his incompetence is, in fact, extremely confident. Uh, that announcement delights because it's such a thorough flop. Storing today like a dead mole. So Ammons' poems are my most vivid instance of lyrics engagement with failure. Uh, Ammons does not shy away from showing how unprepossessing elements of his life are. And he describes his inner life as follows. I suppose you would like to know something about my inner life? Well, it stinks. 
No, no, I don't mean that. I'm kidding. What I mean is that I think you would like to think that my inner life stinks. It is so comforting to know that other people's inner life also stinks. Uh, how is this very talky digression comic rather than excruciating? Uh, keep in mind, this is two and a half hundred pages into a poem full of such moments. It becomes comic, I think, when we recognize fortuitous details that make this voice come alive. Uh, there's the colossal gap between it and stinks. Emmons loves those enjambments where you then crunch to a stop. Um, there's the flurry of what I mean, I think, you think. Emmons um, is presenting an inner life that's much homelier than those that we usually link to poetry. Um, but he gets at this homeliness with precision. Uh, take even for a last example uh, in the final two lines, that ungrammatical phrase, other people's inner life also stinks. Uh, people should have a plural inner lives. We each have one of them. But Ammon's rather tellingly lumps the inner lives of everyone else into a single, single one. So, uh, summing up lyrics comedies, I've been tracing out a few of the threads running through this book uh, that modern lyric can become funny in part for the reputation its genre has, and how any given poem doesn't live up to that reputation. Thank goodness. That Ammons and other poets of this book, um, er, and other poets of the 20th century, document their not quite ennobling inner life with precision and wit. Uh, and then the third, uh, that their comedy depends on modern poetic form. So uh, how can poetry be funny once the bottom drops out of conventional verse forms, uh, when we don't have rhyme? So from Byron uh, to A.E. Houseman, or from someone still writing like Wendy Cope, uh, the rhymes are set, the meters are set, they're, they're on autopilot. Uh, here from E.A. Robinson. Minivercivi, child of scorn, grew lean while he assailed the seasons. He wept that he was ever born, and he had reasons. We can tell when each punchline is approaching, because a rhyme promises one. Uh, Miniver cursed the commonplace, and I of khaki suit with loathing. He missed the medieval grace of iron clothing. Uh, but what about most modern, uh, what most ambitious major poems written after about 1910, when those predictable satisfactions are much less frequent? Um, 20th century poems can look uh, more like this Ammons draft on the right, which simply has question marks and I think typewriter sounds floating all over the page. We've seen rhymes in Berenin and a few erratic ones in Roll, but for the most part, fixed forms and metrical patterns uh, are not a given in the poets I'm focusing on. And the absence of rhyme has a number of repercussions for comedy. Uh, first of all, jokes start being tucked into the middles of lines and middles of sentences rather than, as in E.A. Robinson, in those positions where a rhyme happens. Um, and this, in turn, means the, jo the jokes don't announce themselves as jokes so much. It, it's, it tilts towards a more deadpan humor, I think, for a lot of these poets. Um, but the main effect I want to uh, focus on is one that Denise Levertov brought up in a 1979 essay. So she's arguing here that line breaks after modernism really reorient poetry in general. Um, they involve an inherent uncertainty about 
how a thought or a sentence is going to proceed. Um, and in the second half of this long quote, she explains that. The line break, quote, can record the slight but meaningful hesitations between word and word that are characteristic of the mind's dance among perceptions, but which are not noted by grammatical punctuation. That seems exactly right and distinctive to lyrics comedy. The poem begins to turn into a comedy of personality, and its humor comes more and more from a single, errant, sometimes malfunctioning line. There's a similar shift happening in popular comedy as it happens. So in 1900, comedy is being performed in variety theater and vaudeville. Here, all the jokes are arranged in advance. All of the comic routines and the dances are set, so it's prefabricated. But by the middle of the 20th century, one current of comedy, at least, is turning to the solitary person on stage, uh, on a stage alone, not speaking scripted jokes or one-liners, uh, but whatever comes into her head to say. So it's a free-flowing, or it seems a free-flowing associative performance, very much based in gestures, in looks, uh, expressions, pauses. Whatever objects swim into the speaker's stream of consciousness are seen as interesting, not just in and of themselves, but for, for how that speaker thinks of them and moves from one thought to another. So poems, although again Robert Wall, of first-person experience and the stream of thought of stand-up uh, might seem to be quite close to each other. And um, one of my ongoing interests is in how the comedy of lyric and more popular comedy might seem to interact. Uh, each revels in moments of off-kilter logic, second thoughts, and confusion. But the performer has an audience who responds, and the performer reacts to that audience. There's a lot to cut through uh, one's focus on one's inner life. With the lyric, usually written and read alone and in silence, the I is more relentless. So I'm going to wrap up by with some looser thoughts as to how comedy and lyric interact. Now, the fact of being condemned to write about the personal gives lyric poets a set of ethical and aesthetic problems. How can you explore what presses on you without simply revolving around yourself? If you want to represent your state of mind truthfully, and your state of mind tends again and again towards self-concern, how do you portray that tendency without repelling yourself and your readers? I think these poets, even Berryman and Wall, are very concerned about self-absorption and in how one can look beyond the self. They escape self-absorption at least briefly through humor. So comedy directs our attention outwards. Uh, it's almost impossible to think about yourself while you're actually laughing. Uh, and it helps change perspectives and one's sense of one's own importance. Lucy Brock Broido ends a recent poem with a poignant, peculiar image uh, that sums this up for me. She writes, We have come to terms with ourself like a marmoset getting out of her great ape suit. So the we, this capitalized self, uh, must settle with living with itself at this scale, marmoset scale, um, to be marmoset-sized. So comedy helps us see ourselves as smaller primates, and at least briefly wriggle out of what Brock Roydo calls our gorilla suits. 
these poets themselves, Lowell, Berryman, Ammons, Hayes, uh, think about whether laughter has ethical potential. They can be explicitly skeptical about laughter. They know that laughter can often be smug, uh, bullying, um, quite heartless, and also quite mindless. That laughter can be as complacent as anything, and it can also be a way to downplay or dismiss one's faults. So if, if Berryman or Hayes or Lowell actually writes ha in a poem, or ha ha, it's almost always an ominous sign. Like they, they don't represent audible laughter uh, in a friendly manner. But they also seem to find that comedy involves an intense feeling of something shared, which is important to a genre that seeks such a close relation with its reader. One of Lowell's uh, most moving late poems, uh, he, he tells his listener that he doesn't he doesn't need conversation he just wants you to laugh with um, that laughter might be even a force stronger than conversation so Georges Bataille uh, once declared that when people laugh a current of intense emotion passes through them with the effect that at least for a moment those who laugh together become like waves in the sea as long as the laughter lasts there is no longer a partition between them they are no more separated than two waves. That feeling of shared experience is an illusion, much like lyrics' illusions of intimacy. But modern poets are keenly aware of laughter's power, even if it is short-lived or deceptive. Uh, I thought I would wind up with an image from John Berryman's archives. Philip and I have both spent time at the University of Minnesota gathering his letters there. Berryman thought humor could be a way uh, for thinking to take place, just as language or sound or art might be. For many poets, humor is a way of thinking. I've been suggesting in this talk that humor makes us see multiple and seemingly irreconcilable points at once, and that it often tangles delight uh, with its opposites. We see it all over modern lyric, where human failures become not just something moving, but something funny in the same breath. So that's, that's the introduction to my book. Uh, Philip, I don't know how we're doing for time. I have about a, a five minute coda on the letters because I was asked at about 11.30 this morning uh, to put some stuff about the letters back in. Um, there are bits that I thought spoke to some of what's funny in Berryman's letters, um, some of what's more often tragicomic and bearing those letters. So I, I'd be happy to show them to you, or I can just and take any questions you might have about this project. Let's have the letters first. All right, the letters. Let's, let's have the yeah. So, well, to begin with, this is uh, one of Berryman's earliest letters. He's about, I think, 22, 20, 21 still. Mm -hmm. uh, he's writing from Cambridge. Uh, and he, what made me smile at this letter is how his handwriting has transformed as he crossed the Atlantic. He's now uh, put these curlicues on his eyes in these letters back to his mentors in the US that are really excessive. I've never seen anything like them. And they vanish immediately when he gets out of England. But while he's there um, and writing to Blackmore, he says, God knows why I didn't write long since. Find in my papers two typed pages to you on July 10th, but unfinished and dull in any case. So a tantalizing bit of a dull letter that we won't get to see. Um, that's, that's Berryman's earliest handwriting. 
one of the pleasures of working on this project is uh, to see his handwriting change across the decades. Here he's, he's lecturing at Harvard. Uh, he's just begun, and he's describing his undergraduates. My students display a form of illiterate urbanity, which will soon become very depressing. After last year, however, I am up to anything. Uh, a lot of the pleasure in these letters comes out of his snark. Um, this, uh, he's writing to Ezra Pound, who, who must be incarcerated by this time. Um, I was impressed here. Um, by the way, Berryman's tone can shift as he goes to talk to Mr. Pound, rattling off all of these books, um, willing to be dismissive about uh, his, uh, this Defodra, who he, he doesn't know. What is this name, Defodra? I can't read it and know nothing of him. Defodra? I'm curious. And historian, that might have been something he picked up while he was on this side of the Atlantic, of poetry. What a deadly lot they are, except Vosler, and one or two more of those I've read. So he, he tucks claims for his reading in where he can. Um, this letter is, uh, this is actually from the Harvard years, but this is 1942, and this one also, it's the, uh, we're now on page two of this massive letter to Berryman's landlord. The saga of Berryman's refrigerator has been going on for some weeks, possibly some months now, and Berryman has just had enough. So he, he writes, the refrigerator worked, it's, oh yeah, I think this is refrigerator number two. Yeah. This is after a repair. Worked for only six days. It or its generator then developed a high-pitched scream, which would be heard everywhere in the apartment, and made my wife so nervous that it had to be shut off. I called the Codman office, and they sent a technician, and he fixed it. The next day, the same thing happened. The next day, the same thing happened. The next day, the same thing happened. That was yesterday. Last night, the refrigerator blew out a fuse, and for at least 15 hours now, again, full of food, it has not worked. There, it sits. And we have not the slightest reason, have we, to believe that what will be done to it by your agents tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow will be any more efficient or any more honest than what has been done to it heretofore. So in the pound letter, he, he, he makes his, his language more and more casual, even to talk about the fairy queen and Ulysses. When he addresses his landlord, he really busts out the, uh, the rhetorical big guns, for lack of a better phrase. Um, but the, the, this fridge of food that's now rotting, that for Berryman, he had very little money at that time, and it, this, it wasn't a joke. Um, these were years where he was living at best from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, this, this is a winning letter that he sent to Elizabeth Bishop um, some 20 years later. Um, in praise of her work, we learn here that Roosters is Berryman's favorite bishop poem, uh, and that he's taught it all over the place. He also mentions a quite uh, bishop-like gesture in the middle of this letter. Uh, he says, uh, so roosters have taught in various universities and read to audiences all over the northern United States. When I was in India in 1957, I sent to you in Brazil one of the famous little painted wooden animals they make in Benares, a cock. Did you ever get it? Bishop, uh, I, I know she sent similar figures off to wool, but I found it touching the Berryman saw this bishop-like creature and thought to try to mail one to her. Uh, that poem still seems to me, he writes, your absolute masterpiece. 
In spite of the astonishing and marvelous visits to St. Elizabeth's, I hope you are well and happy and writing. May we meet sometime and talk Merry Christmas. Um, so letters like this to other writers have been a real delight to discover. This, now jumping ahead 10 more years to right around 1970, he's simply announcing in all caps the birth of his second daughter, uh, Sarah, uh, who he discovers uh, is rather pretty after 15 minutes in the cruel world, and turns out yesterday to have lynx ears. God knows all she'll hear with them. So that's his welcome to his second child. Uh, and this uh, last and, and more moving than in any way funny, this is quite, it might be a few months at most before his death, and he's writing to a bookshop in England to request uh, a real hodgepodge of books. Um, he, he, there are several of these lists, his demands. Um, I'm not sure that you can see this writing too well. I can't even looking at it on this screen, but he he looks for Simone Weil he wants, um, a bunch of Trollope novels, uh, biographies of Wordsworth, uh, Santayana's, the, um, the idea of Christ in the Gospels, um, so, several books on Shakespeare. He was, he was still trying to work on his Shakespeare projects at this point, and biographies of Burgley, Walsingham, Robert Cecil. So uh, books from a number of different fields, um, and it, it, I found it affecting that this, these last letters had so much energy in them. Um, you can also see how his handwriting has changed from this quite elegant um, letter from the early 1940s and uh, back to our letters with the curly cute eyes. So that's, that's really a, a taste of some of what we've been finding in the archives. If you have any questions about the letters, I'd be glad to answer them, or about any aspect of what I've been discussing regarding lyric or comedy. Thank you.